You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. Welcome to Angus Underground. In today's episode, we're going to discuss to EPD or not EPD. That is the question. Joining us will be uh, Joe and Corbin. Hey, guys, how's it going? Be going a lot better if I could see Joe. It's going perfect, David. I might be joining you. Yeah, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't even know if I've got computer audio, video. This is worse than the worst Zoom meeting I've ever done. And I've done a lot of them. <laughs> My God, I, I, wouldn't you think in 2021, I should have some sort of bandwidth to do like, you know, www.angus.org, right? I mean, it's terrible here. L- living in the uh, progressive motherland of California, where high-speed internet is a human right, I find it ironic that uh, Corbin, who lives in the, uh, down the sticks in uh, nowhere, Oklahoma, <laughs> Has this great internet service. I'm just glad to not be the one with the problem for once. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm glad. I'm glad whenever my computer freezes and I see Corbin looking like the front of a terror movie cover. <laughs> because right now I got to take a picture of this. This is unbelievable. Oh, no. Now you're back. Now you're back. I had a picture of him <laughs> drinking a Pepsi for like five seconds. Just, just the Pepsi up in the air. And now it says, just so you guys know. Yeah, we'll call it Pepsi. It says, uh, <laughs> see, I thought it was Pepsi. It says con- connection unstable. <laughs> I think this is indicative of how the day is going to go, but this is it's good. It's um, my internet is predictable as EPDs are right now, so there's a good lead in for you. Nice, <laughs> expected internet, expected internet. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's ridiculous! Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so, guys, our goal today is not to convince anyone of right or wrong. Our goal is to stimulate thought and discussion. Let's start by just saying, what what does EPD mean? Expected progeny differences, and uh, I'm one over the uh, over the years. I've come to uh, uh, certainly not expect EPDs to be an absolute, but I think when we look at them over spread over the entire population of Angus cattle, yeah, there's a fair amount of accuracy there, and and it's ironic to me of all the things in the world. Uh, of all the different personalities. Uh, when we get a couple of Angus breeders together, the discussion about EPDs is always one of the most controversial subjects that you can ever listen to. There's a lot of people that say there's two sides to the debate, uh, the pro and, and, and those that are against EPDs. But I, I'm here today to argue that there's probably a third party in the debate. And that's the middle ground where EPDs are a secondary selection tool or a comparison tool between herds. And wouldn't you say though, David, that we're also like, couldn't you call the third group, the, the hypocrites, right? <laughs> we like EPDs, but we don't like them. We breed for them, but we don't. And that's when we kind of got to, to what the thesis was of this particular podcast, I think we had a lot of, of time to grapple with it. And it was difficult to come up with any centralized message because I use them. I use EPDs, but I'm not necessarily happy with the results sometimes. I, I think that 
when you start looking through at 9.3 million birth weights, 9.8 million weaning weights, the amount of data and still the unpredictive nature of some of these things, it becomes hard to justify at times. But I, I guess my hope is with this segment that we navigate through that and try to just share with folks that there is a middle ground. There's a middle ground of folks who are trying to breed the right kind of cattle for their customer and then also try to provide some sort of, of genetic advancement through expected progeny differences as well. Absolutely. And I, I think before we get too far into this, I, I said there are three sides to this debate. And, and we just laid out our collective side here, and we're, we're more of the middle ground where EPDs are a secondary selection tool. Uh, but we have those that are very adamantly pro-EPD. And those folks tend to say that true progress is measured only with EPDs. And EPDs have become the primary selection criteria in their programs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got those who are very anti-EPD or against the EPDs. And they will make the uh, claim that uh, EPDs are for the intellectually lazy and that they simply cannot replace a breeder's eye. And uh, just with anything else, as you've listened to our podcast, Joe Corbin and myself, we've always preached that the, the truth or the uh, sweet spot is generally somewhere in the middle. And, and that's what we're going to throw to you today. Yeah, it, create, it creates quite the conundrum whenever you're, uh, you're trying to be that middle ground. And, and then you've got guys from both sides trying to tug and pull on you. And you just, <laughs> you just want to throw your hands up and be like, hey, I'm here for both of you. <laughs> So Corbin, you know why? My, my friend Aaron Strumman says this. He said, Clarence Van Dyke used to say, when you walk down the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides of traffic. And it's so much easier when you're marketing a program to be one direction or the other. And the least logical is in the middle for marketing cloud, at least. No question. And you brought up the, uh, the term earlier, uh, hypocrites, Joe. And uh, certainly I've been labeled a hypocrite. I've been labeled anti-EPD. I've been labeled anti Angus Association. And by the way, I don't think any of those three labels fit. I'm very pro uh, American Angus and I am pro EPD. You know, heck, I, I want these EPDs to be uh, accurate and predictive. It only makes our job easier, but it's, it's human nature to become skeptical when the EPDs seem to defy conventional wisdom or even our own observations. I would love nothing more if they match reality. And I would agree with you. I feel like if we didn't say something to the EPDs that we don't agree with or that we don't feel like carry enough enough accuracy, then we would be doing a disservice to everyone. I, I just feel like uh, we're going to be better off if we kind of call it like we see it. So that's what we hope to do. And um, unfortunately, it might rub some people the wrong way, but that's just the way it is. So another quote I like about EPDs is when uh, I think it was Jerry Lipsy with the American Cemental Association used to say, he said, uh, they're like alien sightings or UFO sightings. There's usually always a logical explanation. And I think that one thing we'll get into later on in, the, in probably the last third of this talk is, is um, once we've added genomics, we've been seeing more UFOs. So we'll dive into that a little bit later. It, it, it's magnified some of the differences. But, you know, I, I think a good spot to start, David, maybe a little icebreaker here that you brought up to me the other day. I get this from customers all the time. I get it with respective traits, et cetera. What's a good EPD? <laughs> a good EPD to me is one that's accurate, uh, regardless of the level. You know, if we're talking growth, 
if we have a customer that's selecting for cattle that will improve the growth genetics of his herd, I just want it to be accurate. I want to do what we advertise. And spoiler alert, that's that's exactly how I feel about it. You know, when you really dive in and and I'll I'll extrapolate some of this information out from a presentation that Kelly um, Ritellet gave in California a couple months ago, which was masterful. And anybody that thinks there's a current trend that comes from um, right deep inside the association's bowels, I truly don't believe that. I think it's breeders and I think it's marketing. I think EBDs have driven marketing value of cattle, but um, there's quite a bit of deviation that can occur. I, I have a bull right now. He'd be the bull that we're going to use AI in our program um, out of the 2020 calf crop. His name's Halo and Halo sits right at a 70 on weaning weight EPD. He's been Angus GS out of a highly, highly, highly uh, proven cow in our operation out of a, a bull that's carrying 0.98 on accuracy. And uh, today, based on his accuracy and on the standard deviation he could have, where the middle of his bell-shaped curve hits, that's what they talk about. The middle of the bell-shaped curve says he's a 70 on weaning weight. He can still oscillate between the top 20% of the breed for growth or right at breed average. So we need to keep this in context when we're really considering the rest of this conversation today. Absolutely. And that's where a lot of us fail to, to really grasp how these EPDs are calculated and how they can change um, as more and more data comes in. That bell, bell-shaped curve, you always have to remember the middle The middle is, is where you want to be. And then you have those extremes one way or the other. And uh, simple distribution genetics will tell you uh, s- some will be where the parental averages exist uh, some will trend more towards the sire, some more towards the dam. Uh, so we always have to keep that in mind. And and you brought up something uh, in your comments there, Joe, and I, I want to circle back to it. Um, I don't want us to get too far off the rails here, but I want to circle back. And my, probably my biggest complaint um, with EPD use throughout our breed right now is that I see EPDs as being misused a lot of times, or they're primarily a marketing tool rather than a selection tool. And and what that has begot us is we've seen a EPD arms race manifest itself. And in that arms race, we've got some just idiotic extremes uh, coming out of it. And that's led to, as we spoke earlier, more and more of these uh, lowly proven. We'll just call those guys that are able to make those math selections. That they're just really good at sitting in their basement on their computer with their Crocs on and, and just, yeah. just making math happen. <laughs> and that's an inside joke for a lot of us. But, uh, <laughs> but, but we've created these extremes now. And, uh, and, and where's, where's that end? I mean, I, I don't know that anyone has the answer to that, but where does it end? What, what it's doing is skewing predictability. Absolutely. And I think that I think that the whole nexus behind EPDs, before you do you have the question, do you EPD or not EPD, you got to ask the question of what your program is and who your customer is. And for Bruin Ranch specifically, and I know for Montana Angus Ranch too on the bull side, it's the commercial cattleman. And the commercial cattleman has been screaming to us for too long, our cows are too big, our cows need to be easier fleshed, our cows, we want the cows we had 25 years ago. And when you look at this arms race, I think it was interesting how you put that. I I think very accurate too. 
this arms race has, has been centered around growth because the computer algorithms like growth. They like extended yearling weight. They like extended carcass weight favorably for dollar beef, which in turn feeds into dollar C. And when you do a sort, they pop up. I mean, that's, that's just the basic fact behind it, frankly. Absolutely. So let's kind of dig deep and dive into this. Um, personally, I have a lot of confidence in our growth and carcass trait EPDs. And obviously, those, those are the biggest data sets that we have at American Angus. Uh, so, so our accuracy levels there are, are pretty high. Um, my confidence in them is pretty high. But, but then we, we deviate from those particular traits and, and we get into traits that I think I have just a moderate confidence level in, such as birth weight, and then consequently, calving ease direct, uh, and probably further, a little further down the line is uh, uh, maternal calving ease. And, and I know, Joe, you and I have had a very deep discussion about, I call it maternal calving ease, realistically, what they called it, American Angus is calving ease maternal. I think one of the one of the issues with maternal cavities that I have, and I I will go back and I actually disagree with you on a couple, um, but probably more anecdotally than than in terms of just factually. But um, cavities maternal is inherently flawed because of some basic premises that are accepted in how data is collected. In my opinion, um, like when you look at cavities direct, for example. That is only taken, that observation is only taken on first-time heifer calf, heifers. And, and also, how many times have you gone through a calf crop? I just told you I almost did a backflip because I pulled a calf the other day. <laughs> Calved out almost 70 heifers and I almost did a backflip. Why? Because if you have 100% of those animals come back unassisted, it does nothing for the data. Right. Absolutely nothing. And that's actually quite interesting that you bring that up when it comes uh, to calving ease direct. Gen X actually did a survey that came out in November fourth of 2019. And what this survey did was basically it ranked the percentile of the amount of calves that had to be pooled in regards to the calving ease direct of that uh, bull that was used. So you would be very uh, interested to find out that from a seven EPD on, seven calving ease direct to 17 calving ease direct, each one of those was less than 2%, 2% of calves were pooled. So, uh, and, and a 17 was at over 1%. So there's really not much uh, deviation there between a seven and a 17. Yet, whenever we're making our breeding selections, we all think we have to have this double digit cavities with a negative five birth. And, and that's just, basically, that's just, you're just, it's, it's a waste of time. There's no validity to it. It's not necessary. So I'm going to tell you guys right now, I'll tell you at this presentation, I was out with Kelly Ritelic. She needs a major kudo on that one because at that point in the, in the, in the presentation, when she's talking to everybody, she says, how many producers buy bulls that were at 2.0 on birth weight? And some people raise their hand and she goes, how many calves you pull? The guy said, well, we don't pull any calves. She said, then why in the world would you want to drive that number smaller? If you have 100% unassisted, you can't get more than 100% unassisted. And if you get 95 or 99% unassisted in the wild environment, you have to expect that you're going to have some of those management things that need to happen. Now, does it mean we need to be using a negative 25 cavities direct on heifers? Absolutely not. But this narrative that we've driven that, that, a, that a person can, can select numbers and spend more purchasing dollar to make their life perfect. I think is what's led us down the road of cattle that 
that don't perform on paper to the extent that they should, frankly. And and then there's the cost scenario. You know, she she threw it out. Why are you spending so damn much money on heifer bulls? Why don't you just keep buying the two on birth and the six on Cavanius Direct you've been buying? And and I I really wanted to take the time, and we didn't do this. <laughs> we didn't even get into the subsequent recordings here, but but. Uh, um, I wanted to say that last time because I think I think that's a message coming from the association that I really appreciate right now for sure. Well, I definitely think that you can take that a step further. Whenever you buy those negative, you know, those 17 Cavanese direct bulls, I think it's to your detriment because if that calf's born small, then it's never going to catch up. So so it's you can take it even a step further than what than what most of us do. And and that's just something that we kind of ignore. We're like whenever we're going to buy bulls, like man, I gotta have that negative birth. I gotta have that double-digit cavities, and it's, it's really to your detriment to be doing that. Well, we we as breeders, um, <laughs> you know, we, we like to blame American Angus for uh, for these conundrums that we find ourselves in, but, but we as breeders are 100% guilty for putting that mindset to our commercial producers, that you have to have this double-digit cavities bull. And why have we done it? Because it's an easy sale. You know, we've we've all seen that bull. He's a uh, hundred pounds lighter than anything else in the sale. He walks in the ring. Heck, we got to say something good about the bull. Look at the catalog. He's double digit calving. He's bull. So we tell him, hey, you need this bull so that you can make your kids basketball games. Well, that's that's silly. Well, and it's not going to sound nice. <laughs> it's not going to sound nice. But I wrote this down here in one of my comments. The only days I really give a damn about EPDs are on sale day, <laughs> and that's terrible. But really, I, what I care about and what my commercial cattlemen care about, because when they slam the gate on that trailer, they no longer remember what the EPDs are, their cattle. What they remember is, was the calf, did the cow calving cause me problems? Did I have to, did I have to assist that calf? Um, were the calves as heavy as they were last year? Did they finish out for my buyer at the same level they have in previous years? Did my buyer come back? That's the yeah. true barometer of success, frankly, for me. And when we look at some of these EPDs that I say are threshold EPDs, we can get into marbling later if you want. I think it's stacking nets on a pinhead saying, how much do we really need? If you're the A-plus student in class, why do, we have to, why do we have to denigrate all the students that know all the subject matter for the one that's the A-plus-plus? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I can tell you, Corbin and I would know nothing about being an A-plus student. So uh, I don't even know anything about what it's like to go to class. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered those, those traits. And, and I want to talk about some of the traits that, that I don't have much confidence in. And there's, there's four traits that really leap to the forefront for me. And that's number one is milk. And it's a lowly heritable trait. I mean, who, who are we fooling there? And we've got a trait that's so uh, married to growth, to pre-weaning growth. And uh, I know many, many years ago when they tried to develop this EPD, they resorted to milking cows twice a day. And, and it was quite a process. But when the rubber meets the road, I have zero confidence in the milk EPD. And that's fine, you know, because we know bloodlines. We know which bloodlines milk well and which ones don't. And we all need differing levels of milk. So we kind of have to do that on an observational level. The next EPD, of, of course, is heifer pregnancy, which I'm going to get into when we touch on uh, dollar maternal. And then uh, the third and fourth traits I have very little confidence in, and primarily because they're new traits. Uh, we have fairly recently, they've assigned those EPDs, and that's uh, claw symmetry and uh, hoof angle, which uh, it's a subjective measure to begin with. We're relying on people to uh, look at the chart and evaluate their own cattle 
and evaluate them honestly. And uh, it's going to it's going to take many years before we get there, if we ever do. So do you feel like that that the claw and angle EPD is just trying to make those guys sitting in, on their couches just trying to make it easier on them, or or what's the uh, because you know that claw and angles it's so subjective that I just I just don't really see the benefit in there being an EPD that's one hundred percent subjective and that we input ourselves it, it just makes no sense to me. Well, and that that's another trait too. Just just as we talked about calving he's direct. Any of these EPDs, if all the calves weigh the same, if they all arrive without uh, any assistance, or if the hooves are all perfect, guess what? It's not going to it's not going to move the EPDs. Uh, these EPDs are built on the premise that there has to be differences within a contemporary group. You have to have good ones. You have to have poor ones. And uh, Joe and I actually talked about this uh, briefly this morning. What's kind of led me to uh, be overly skeptical of the hoof EPDs, and, and I've been grading hooves here for eight years. We live in an environment that's extremely soft. We don't have any rock for these cattle to wear their feet off. They don't have to travel great distances for uh, feed and water. So there's just not a lot of wear on these feet. So, so we have to pay particular attention to the bloodlines that we utilize in terms of hooves. But with that being said, when I get a set of bulls on test, or I've got heifers uh, that I'm developing for, for replacements, culling is an everyday practice for me. You know, if I'm feeding those bulls and I look at a foot, I say, boy, I just don't like that foot. He, that bull might be nine months old, 10 months old, 11 months old. Guess what? He gets on the next trailer out of here. So by the time we get to the point, you know, usually at 13, 14 months, when I'm grading those hooves, the bad ones are gone. All that I'm left with are those that are exceptional or those that are adequate. So that does very little to move the needle. Well, and, and unfortunately, it'll move the needle the wrong way a lot of times. Right, yeah. Like I said, I've been been pulling these hoof scores for eight years, and, and we pull it on all the cows every year, all the yearlings every year. I've submitted one set of uh, hoof scores, and it was on a set of bulls that had already been called through on feet. I send them in, not thinking about what the ramifications would be. I get the EPDs back, and it shows such a disparity at that point. You know, I had bulls ranking in the top 10% of the breed. I had bulls ranking in the bottom 5% of the breed. When in reality, you go out and look at those feet, and there's not that much difference in them. And so I, I think that's the problem of the system. And that goes whether we're talking about feet or weaning weights or yearling weights. You know, if you're losing cattle out of those contemporary groups, it will have a negative impact on you. So what point do you think it could have value? I mean, do you think that the association, the association has independent trade evaluators that go to herds and you could call and set up an appointment, they could evaluate feet. We have the same person doing it all the time. Do you think we could get to a point where an EPD could work for hoof and angle? I'm going to be perfectly frank and, and brutally honest with you. No, no. I'm optimistic that it would be, but I just don't see it happening. In fact, what was it nine, 10 years ago? I had the privilege of speaking to the board of directors at American Angus with staff members. And uh, I was sat on a panel of three. And one of the panelists, another breeder, brought up the fact he said, Hey, I'd like to see hoof EPDs. And, and I think I was the only one in the room that was opposed to that. And I said, Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, it's very honorable that you're wanting to do this. But I said, I don't think it's up to a breed association to give us a, an EPD which basically instructs us to do the right thing. And the quickest way to uh, improve hooves on your cattle is to call. And if you're not doing that, then the marketplace will dictate that you must because you'll sell some bulls that are bad-footed 
And guess what? You will lose customers over it. Yeah, I think the uh, silver lining with the feet deal with the EPD and altogether everything about it is that unlike milk, the feet are very heritable. So if you, if you know a bull has bad feet, well, then you can kind of expect what's going to happen. And, and so that's that's kind of a silver lining with the whole EPD deal. And so I don't want anyone to get discouraged out there. Like, man, I don't know if I can't trust these feet EPDs. You know, it's highly heritable. So if you know his father has good feet, you know his mother has good feet, you can kind of rest assured knowing that he's, you know, his progeny is probably going to be pretty good. That's a good point. And that's kind of been standard practice for us over the last several years is uh, we call aggressively and I make dang sure that we stack multiple generations of good footed cattle. And I think as long as you're doing that, you're going to have, you know, these commercial wool customers are going to be very content with the product that you're sending out. And I would say that's something we found for every trait though, David, frankly, is we find these thresholds that we're comfortable or not comfortable with using in our operation, which I'll tell you, I mean, I'm not at a point right now at Bruin Ranch where I'm going to bring in anything that's in the bottom 5% of the breed for hoof or angle. I'm not going to bring anything in that's in the bottom 10% because I think it's one of those where there's smoke, there's fire. Do I think the reliability is there? No, I don't. No, I don't. And I agree with you on that. I will say that I'm hopeful I think, you know, we won't talk about genomics too much in this episode, but we just crossed over a million genomic types, uh, cattle genotyped by the American Angus Association. We have enough DNA there that if we could get reliable data from producers of why they're culling these animals, we should be able to identify markers that can then fold into the actual profile of that animal. Now, having said that, I could look at a pedigree with a higher degree of accuracy. And I know that's a bold claim, but I could look at a pedigree with a higher degree of accuracy on foot quality than most of the EPDs could. Agreed. Agreed. So, Joe, I know in our discussions leading up to this episode, you did a tremendous amount of research surrounding EPDs and their accuracy and and how they've um, evolved over time. And, And you had a great comparison between two extremely well-known bulls from yesteryear. So I think there's another component that we don't look at as much when we talk about EPDs and and it's the ability to bring up something. There's a premise there. There's, remember I told you there's premises that build into these algorithms that I think are flawed. And one of the premises is that the next generation is always better than the first. And I have a problem with that because I think that there's some bulls from history that we could go back and still use as tools as viable germplasm, if you will, as outcrosses within our within our Angus breed. And because of this need for genetic quote advancement in a certain direction, which which is is we could argue why that is a little bit later if you want, but it's crammed down on a lot of the other older genetics, I would say. Two bulls I want to discuss. The first one, you remember Bondview New Design 1407, Corbin? You know anything about him? I, no. <laughs> Let me tell you about 1407. 2001, um, I just started at Cal Poly. I've been asked to help calve out cows on the purebred operation, which was a tremendous honor. And the very first calf, or it was, um, it was uh, no, it must have been 2000, I guess. That doesn't sound right, though. I swear his number was 0001, but maybe I'm losing it. Maybe it was 1001. It was the first calf. He was a new design 1407 son. And we previously recorded this and I screwed up. His number, his mother's number wasn't 9039. It was 9033. Consequently, she was an emblazon daughter. We'll get there in a second. I called Mike Hall, who was the head of the beef department at that time. And I said, Mike, I don't know what this sire code 14 is, but these cattle are complete garbage and we need to get rid of them as soon as possible. He goes, what's wrong with them? I said, they're ugly, buffalo fronted, little bitty, ratty, teeny tiny calves. And that's when I learned that 
you observe, observe, observe all the time, but don't be afraid to eat a little crow on some of these sires because by weaning them, 1407s were kicking it in the rear and at yearling, they were the biggest and stoutest. And I'm completely confident, David, I want you to step in, but I'm completely confident that in today's modern way of how we raise and grow cattle, if 1407 was there, he'd be right near the top of the breed in terms of growth, wouldn't you say? I, I do. Yeah, I, I think he'd be extremely competitive. And and in fact, you dig into many of these trait leading sires for growth, uh, especially yearling growth and uh, for the carcass traits. I mean, 1407 is going to be a common denominator in a lot of those pedigrees. So conversely, I told you it was a corrective mating on 9033, and it was her 1407 calf. She was an emblazon daughter, OCC emblazon. What do we use him for? Tremendous <laughs> amount of capacity and forage doability, moderate frame, easy fleshing, cattle that are born light but mature really, really quickly, mature with a lower mature size. Am I characterizing all that fair enough? Yeah, I, I think those two bulls, those two bulls, 1407 and Blazon, if you lined up a spectrum of uh, influential sires, I mean, these two bulls would be at opposite ends. We've got one that was that was used to increase performance, and the result was a lot of mature size in Blazon at the other end, who we u- used to moderate performance or moderate mature size, but in the uh, process, we lost some performance. So yeah, they're two completely opposites. So you fed a lot of cattle though. Absolutely. In your previous life, you fed a lot of cattle. What's the difference in carcass weight on those cattle, you think? <laughs> it would be substantial. It would be substantial. Okay, let me get there in a second. But for, well, we'll go right to it. Today, here it sits. These bulls were uh, born in 1997 and 1995, respectively. 1407 and 1997. His carcass weight is a whopping 17 right now. Bottom 5% of the Angus population. Astounding. Which one of the two things you say, wow, he's a dud nowadays. We've had a lot of genetic improvement. Or maybe some of us would back up and go, holy Moses, those cattle were too big back then. What have we done to the, to the breed leaders now? Indeed. Get back on topic, though. OCC and Blazon's a nine. Again, a 17 and a nine. In percent of the breed, they're both bottom 5% of the breed for carcass weight. Eight pounds of difference on carcass weight. Let's look at their Cavanese Direct. Look at their Cavanese Direct. Remember I told you they were kind of similar. You'd agree too. 7,743 observations for 1407. He sits right at a 10 with 96, um, 0.96 accuracy. And Blazon is a 12 with 1,382. I could take that difference between a 10 and a 12. They're over seven, like Corbin says, who cares? I'll work on heifers, right? <laughs> Birth weight, 1407 is a negative 0.4. OCC and Blazon, 0.3. I can take that. Weaning weight. This is where I start to kind of spread away from you. Weaning weight, 1407 is a 37. And in Blazon is a 43. So even in Calaveras High School, that is a six pound difference between 1407 and Emblazon. And it gets worse when you get to yearling because I know that some people would say, well, them Emblazons were wrinkle-faced and masculine and, and they were heavy and maybe they just shut down at weaning, right? They just, those cattle are quick, quick, quick. The 1407s have an extended growth pattern. 1407s is a 73 on yearling weight. Emblazon is a 68, which I think that difference is five pounds difference at a year of age. Yeah, I'm not buying what they're selling. That doesn't seem like what you described at all. Well, and it's not. It's not in person. And that's what's frustrating because either one, where I'm at on the EPD thing, and and like I said, the EPD thing that's out there, we use it for balanced trait selection in our cattle. And we're always trying to move the direction of of our cow herd to help our commercial cattlemen. 
I don't think it does any good for our commercial cattlemen when we have two historic bulls that did two things so incredibly different that basically have the exact same EPD profile, save marbling. Now, they're a little bit different on marbling, which is expected, but it's frustrating that there's not more spread on the other EPDs. And, and I would articulate, actually, that I think that's because of genetic drift and what's built into the models in terms of, of how these younger cattle, these newer genetics have so much more growth than everything else. And it, it's frankly, when you start dissecting it like that, it's, it's frustrating because in Blazon, hell, I'll bet he was about a 68 when he came out in 1996, David. And uh, 1407, he had to be around 110. I think that's real close. 110, 120? Yeah, I think both of those are really close. And that's been one of the biggest frustrations that I hear from folks around the country is they say, you know, I've gone back, I call it back to the future breeding, but they've gone back and used a bull that's been uh, very successful in their program or very influential. They've gone back and, and used that bull amongst some of today's modern genetics. And they said, hey, there's no difference here. There's no difference here. And, and so I'm unsure about what the uh, system is that tamps these older genetics down. But I, I'd like to think there's a way that we can go back in time and test some of these older bulls against the newer bulls and hopefully, uh, you know, even out the playing field a little bit. Well, see, you know, what's funny about all this is I totally agree with what you guys are saying and the way that is, but it's completely exacerbated too, even within our heifers compared to a six-year-old cow. So what happens whenever you have a first calf heifer that raises a bull and you go to you go to look at that thing's EPDs. Well, they're they're heavier weighted because it's out of a two-year-old. And that just, you know, there's just no, it just feel like the, the younger cattle are heavier weighted and it doesn't matter how far back you go. It's just the way it is. Unfortunately, that's true. And that's going to lead us into uh, what I was saying earlier about folks are gaming the system at this point in this EPD arms race by stacking all these new unproven genetics uh, because they can one-up their competition. I got one to throw to you. All of the breeders who we could have left listening to us by now, if you have the highest dollar maternal female in the breed and you are IVFing her to a yearling bull that's the highest dollar maternal bull in the breed, I think you got to check yourself on that one, frankly. That just seems like totally antagonistic to the intent behind what I see a maternal index as. It is. It is. And we're going to dive into that shortly. Hey guys, I'd like to share with you some information from one of our sponsors. With 48 years of continuous Angus breeding, Shady Brook Angus Farm is nationally recognized as a premier source of maternally dominant genetics. Many of the breed's most well-known and historically respected dams have resided at Shady Brook Angus Farm. Plan now to join Vince Santini on the second Saturday in April each year as he offers access to the Shady Brook program with females from the very top cut of the cow herd and elite herd sire caliber bulls. Visitors are always welcome at the farm near Leoma, Tennessee. For more information, visit ShadybrookAngusFarm.com. Again, ShadybrookAngusFarm.com. Now back to the show. Let's jump into genomics real quick because let's face it, genomics are driving today's most popular genetics. And there's, there's two really differing philosophies. And just as divisive as EPDs are in our membership, I think the utilization of genomics has further caused a divide in our membership. 
So we've got these two warring camps right now. We've got the progenomics camp, which is leading to a proliferation of stacking these unproven cattle in an effort to advance the EPD levels even higher. And, and basically what that's leading to is a deterioration of fundamental production traits. You know, these, uh, I call them, a lot of them are kind of subjective maternal traits. And then on the other side, we've got this camp that's, uh, I would say they're, they're anti-genomic, you know, and, and, and that's for a variety of reasons. But they're, they're more geared to the phenotypic data that we've all gathered over the years. So they're still pulling these weights, turning them in. This reluctance for them to do this genomic testing, unfortunately, has led to an underrepresentation of their genetics within that genomically tested population. So when they do pull out, let's say they want to do their top five or top 10 bulls out of their bull cell. So they submit those, but they have not submitted anything of like genetics. So when that genomic test, uh, it's looking for relationships. You know, it looks for relationships, ancestral relationships. To, to really sort out their their genetic merit. And so if it's not finding any of these relationships, I mean, they just plummet. Well, there'd be nothing to tie them to it, David. There'd be no actual data that, exactly. that says we have a thousand heifers that have been scanned and they're consistently over their contemporaries for IMF measurement. There's no basis for comparison. So you just have to assume that they're average maybe. I don't know what the system assumes they are, but if you look at anything that's truly outcrossed to the mainstream within the Angus business, they're never favorable for carcass or growth traits. No, and we've, we've seen it right here at Montana Ranch because, listen, we're, we're always trying uh, something a little bit different. I mean, we want to differentiate ourselves from the competition. And so we're, we're utilizing some different genetics or, or we're going back in time and pulling a bull forward that we've had a lot of success with. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to classify it, we do genomic test everything here. Bulls, females, you name it. Everything on the place has been done because I do want them represented in the population. Unfortunately, if it's something so obscure and I've not sent in anything of, of real relation to it in the past, it just pukes that number up. And that animal has terrible, terrible genetic predictions. And, and that's just something that we're going to have to live with. And the way I look at it is, okay, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and genomic it. And if it's a herd bull, let's get some progeny and let's prove it the old-fashioned way. But unfortunately, those genomics act as an anchor. This is something that we've seen right here with one of our herd bulls. And I'll, I'll give you this example really quickly. But the, this was a, a, a bull that when we bought him, he ranked in the top 1% of those gen genomically tested animals for both calving ease direct and birth weight. So what do we do the first year we bring him home? We use him on heifers, naturally. And uh, the first 20 calves resulting from that calf crop, sired by this bull, they ratioed a 108 for birth weight. And it, I will tell you, I mean, we don't use really extreme calving ease light birth weight bulls here. I detest those. But this was a bull that defied what his genomics said. And, and today he has close to 40 calves. Well, he has only moved one or two points for calving ease direct and only one pound for birth weight with a, uh, today is a 106 birth ratio. 106 birth ratio. And a CED is a 12. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a bull that uh, had we not had genomics there, I suspect if we, if we came in with a 106 or 108 birth ratio, it would have moved him from today's a 1.2 birth. 
he'd probably be sitting at a three and a half. That's highly discouraging considering you have so much data on this bull and it still doesn't move the needle enough for that to be changed. I And I don't have a solution, but it's just discouraging. Right. And here's, here's my point in this whole exercise of telling you this. It's not that, hey, this bull's a failure. I love the bull, still love the bull. We got daughters, um, just a fantastic bull. But what disappoints me or discourages me is when I go in and genomic test these yearling bulls, and if I find one that's you know top 1% calving, he's direct, top 1% birth weight, and then I sell that bull as a four-star, sleep all night, make the basketball game, calving, he's bull to one of my valued commercial customers, and then he ends up pulling calves, I'm going to tell you what. That comes back on you is who it comes back on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be lucky to keep that guy as a customer. Well, so let's say that you have a good relationship with that guy, though, David, which you probably do. You probably would talk to him and say, hey, this doesn't work out for you. What about the new guy, though? What about the guy whose first taste of Montana Ranch? He just picked up a catalog, slinked in, and he looks at it, and he goes, hey, everything I read, a 12 on Cavanies Direct and a negative one on Birth Works. Boom, he buys them. He's not going to blame the APD system. He's not going to blame the accuracy system. He's going to blame Montana Ranch for underrepresenting those cattle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's become a major double-edged sword here. I mean, that's we have this stupid thing that we call the Beef Solutions Toolbox. And uh, I swear that our toolbox in our catalog is, is probably better suited and more accurate than any of the indexes for our breeders. Because what I do is I look at the EPDs and, and I lay it out in the catalog what it means, each index. But then I go in and I individually override each one. If the numbers say he should be Cavanese and he's not, I take it off. If the numbers don't say he should be Cavanese, and I think he is, and I'm willing to take that risk, I'll put it back on. That's fine. I'll live with the consequences when it comes to that point. But um, I think we probably need to move on when it talk, when we're talking about genomics because we could get stuck here all day. I remember being at the association in 2015. I say I'm going to move on, and then I keep going. Have you guys <laughs> noticed this before? <laughs> <laughs> hey, keep rolling, man. But uh, 2015, I, I was in the bowels of the Association Beef Leaders Institute. We need to do a podcast on the Beef Leaders Institute. It's incredible. I would encourage any um, newer old breeder, if you haven't been to St. Joe, apply and get into Beef Leaders Institute. You meet some incredible people. You network with some incredible breeders. Anyways, I remember looking at the genomics, the raw genomics and AGI of a bull that was very, very popular at that time. And he was a one-on birth weight, one-on weaning weight, one-on yearling weight. He was the one everywhere. And I told him, I said, have you looked at that guy's pedigree? That dude is a four on birth. He is a, look at him in person. He is a four on birth. Well, our <laughs> genomics show that he's this and that, and I'm not a geneticist, so I don't know how this happens. Well, let's look at him today after uh, all that water's gone under the bridge. He's a uh, bottom 30% of the breed on Cavanese direct, bottom 20% of the breed on birth weight, which is exactly what he was. And that's not a problem. I think that's one thing. If you really dive into what David and I are about and Corbin and I are about, we aren't frustrated because our cattle are aren't favorable EPD cattle. We're frustrated because that EPD is a contract and it's a commitment to our customers of a level of expectation they should have when purchasing those animals. And when they fall short of those projections, it feels like fraud to me to my commercial customers, honestly. And then you're losing market share too. I had, I had a customer last year. I've taken care of them for years. They're thrilled with the cattle. He said, oh yeah, we're going to this sale first week in September. I said, why are you going there? That's not your type of deal. He goes, I got to see what 160 on yearling weight looks like. And I said, well, be sure to report back to me on what that looks like. And he <laughs> did, which was very predictable. But you brought up this, this generation interval. I also question, I mean, have age of damage adjustment factors been taken out of those? Because I would say they hadn't. 
And those are all fake numbers that have been pumped into a population that automatically shows that first calf heifers or even second calvers show favorable to their contemporaries in terms of production. And we have these sires. We, we got on a roll about it earlier. I used one when I used, and I love him, still use him. He's a negative 2.7 on birth and 125 on yearling. I knew he wasn't that crazy. Now he's about a little less than a one on birth and around 100 on yearling. You genomic test his progeny, David, you know, the bull I'm talking about, they go to outer space still. <laughs> and um, it's just how the genomics are built, which is frustrating. Yeah. And that's, that's the unfortunate part. We visit with breeders from all over the country and that's becoming increasingly heard is, Hey, this cow, this cow, I got to get something out of her or this bull because those calves will really genomic well. Well, what does that really mean in the grand scheme of things? What's the real tangible value on that aside from someone throwing more money at it because it's a number? Yeah. When when the rubber hits the road, yeah, chances are it's going to breed more to its uh, parental averages that it started with. But the association has offered a good solution that we haven't got to yet, David. And, and Kelly, I remember the term she used because I loved it. She said it's hand and glove. We've got to get all the breeders that are submitting genomic data yeah, there's to no also question. submit phenotypic data to match. And that's incredibly frustrating because a lot of people who have the breed leaders for terminal traits, unfortunately, all they have is something to lose. If you have an animal that's worth 300000 on her genomic value and you submit phenotypic right. data that hurts her, you're just hurting your investment, which is a basic difficult economic fact. And that might work the other way too, you know, where if you've got one of those guys that's got all these phenotypic cattle and, and they're like, the only thing I'm going to do by uh, GS testing or using genomics is I'm going to lose money because he, you know, he's going to get, he's going to tank. Well, and I think when genomics were first rolled out, I was super excited for the small breeder because we've all seen that guy. We've been that guy where uh, if you don't have a hundred bulls setting there, the chances of you getting an ultrasound technician are slim and none. I thought a way to kind of level the playing field. I thought, yeah, the big guys will keep doing what they're doing. And uh, yeah, they might genomic test a handful of their uh, of kind of elite herd sire prospects in their bull sale. But the the guy who has 25 bulls for sale, he sells a private treaty. I'm like, well, he cannot get data back on. it's, And it's not so much for the bulls. It was data back on his cows. You know, that would impact that cow's value within that herd. And I thought, boy, this is great. But what we've seen, a lot of these breeders, even if they've got 100 plus bulls, you know, they've been ultrasounding for years, but they plunk down this 37 bucks for a genomic test. And then staring them in the face is another 25 per bull to get them ultrasounded. And, and this is a business of margins. And so that's, that's a real easy decision when it comes down to it. And that larger breeder says, you know what, I'm going to save the 25 bucks. I mean, that's 25 bucks back on onto, uh, my profit margin, and I'm not going to scan these cattle. This DNA, it's great. We're going to run with it. When in fact, what it's doing is it's, it's hurting the system because it's removing those validation points. I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think about a tiered registration system that was discounted based upon the more amount of data you submitted, be it genomic or be it phenotypic? Because I've heard that floated by board members before, and I generally support it, frankly. On the surface, I would as well. And my perspective on data has changed a lot over the years. I remember going to a uh, uh, one of these outreach programs that American Angus put on over in Billings. This has probably been, geez, I'm going to guess 15 years ago at least. And, and I knew one of the discussions uh, for that meeting was whole herd reporting. 
<laughs> and so I'm drive, driving the six hours to Billings. I'm all fired up because I think whole herd reporting is the be all end all. And I get there and then I heard a different perspective. And that perspective was, do you realize how many small breeders we have in this association that own cows because they like owning cows? They register the cattle. They put money into the coffers. They're not interested in uh, submitting weights. In fact, most of them don't even own a set of scales. And, and the more I thought about it, you know, the mom and pop who, uh, you know, maybe they've got 10 Angus cows to produce show heifers for their kids. You know, they need that registration paper, but they're not in, into it to sell seed stock to performance breeders. They're not into it to sell these EPD'd up bulls to commercial producers. They just want a heifer for little Johnny to show. And, and when I heard that, I reevaluated my position on it. But I think the proposal you just mentioned, Joe, makes a lot of sense because it allows little Johnny's parents to keep their cows not have to worry about submitting data. They might have to pay a couple of dollars more for a registration certificate, but I don't think that's a big deal. And uh, those that, that want to go the full meal deal like we do and genomic test and pull weights and heights and all the other stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, I'd like to give those folks a, a bonus for uh, contributing to the EPDs that benefits all the breeders. And I agree. And I think that's probably, I, I, I didn't want to mischaracterize that. I appreciate you clarifying because I would have tied it to genomics. I'd say the genomic test is more. If you want to just genomic your cattle and turn in no data, it's, I don't know, 60 bucks. But then if you turn in a birth weight, you turn in a weaning weight, you turn in a yearling weight, it starts crediting back. And so like you said, you want to raise show heifers or you've got a great bull market down to your commercial friends have been there forever. Hell, maybe you've got 25 purebred cows and you raise them for your own commercial use, your bulls, you don't need that paper for anything. You just would right. like to have the registration paper. I don't, I don't think that this podcast or our stance, once you really dive in, getting to know us, really want to disenfranchise any kind of breeders. We want to incentivize as much Angus use as we can across this great nation. And, and I think that that's probably, we need to get back on track. I kind of derailed us, but um, <laughs> you know, let's talk about, so, so I don't know that if we've really addressed this to EPD or not EPD, and we already beat around the bush saying, you know, we probably would be middle of the road, lukewarm, warm. It's kind of hard to wrestle with how we feel about it, but we're just trying to educate people into the suite of decisions that go into our heads when we make EPD decisions or breeding decisions. That's basically what this whole thing is. So bring us to indexes. What's your thought on the index deal, David? <laughs> I thought you'd never asked Joe. <laughs> 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 so the, the way I see it, the way I see it, this is all editorial now. <laughs> Dollar energy, well, listen, it's good at characterizing the extremes. And on the surface, you look at it and uh, the cattle are either top 5% or bottom 5%. And I, I find that hard to believe that there's no cattle in between. But dollar beef, strictly a terminal index, I, by the way, I think that's fairly accurate. Uh, all the years of uh, feeding and harvesting steers. Yeah, I see some slight differences between sire groups. Uh, sometimes it uh, didn't mirror what the index would say, but mo most of the time it was pretty close. Uh, we talk about dollar weaning. By the way, I think that was originally, at its inception, was a great indicator of maternal efficiency. I want to dwell on that, David, because I remember if there was one I sorted it on, it was dollar weaning, and it would have started in about 2014, and it was a good predictor. Yes. What changed in there? What changed in the model? Do you know? I, I should ask someone at the association, honestly. I don't know exactly, but we can certainly tell that it rewards more growth than it once did. Uh, so I, I think it changed the, 
the relationship between growth and inputs. And uh, obviously, I don't think it's a, a very good predictor of maternal efficiency any longer. Now, let's move on to uh, what I think is the most controversial index. And that's should we put a should we give a, a bathroom break for people <laughs> like a pause section? Yes. Go grab an IV of fluids or Gatorade or something, or tune out if you want. Then you probably get on it. Everyone, y'all are not ready for what's about to happen. Go to a fantasy football podcast instead or something. And now a word from our title sponsor. Mark November 13th on your calendar as Montana Ranch presents their annual Bread for Balance Bull and Female Sale. Featuring 75 strong age and stout made herd sire prospects, along with 50 foundation females, including a power-packed offering of bread heifers, all produced in the embryo transfer program. A great selection of proven cows with calves at side, and a special group of highlighted embryo donors. Genetically different by design and backed by the best satisfaction guarantee in the business, the Montana Ranch Program is built for the profit-minded producer. Bid from the comfort of your home via Superior Productions or online at cellring.live. Catalogs are mailed on request. For more information, go to montanaranchangus.com. Again, montanaranchangus.com. Now, back to the show. So I, I wouldn't classify myself as a strict, low-input maternal breeder. Again, I'm somewhere in the middle. I like to say maternal performance. Uh, I like to have a little bit of performance there, not in excess. But I, I am a big proponent of cattle that excel at maternal characteristics. And many of those characteristics are uh, more subjective. I call them qualitative, not quantitative. And so when uh, Dollar Maternal was uh, being discussed before it was adopted and uh, turned into an index at American Angus, I mean, I was very outspoken. I called board members. I, I'm not a politician, but I, I really politicked hard in opposition to this. And, and primarily because I didn't think, number one, they would get it right. And number two, again, this is strictly opinion. I thought this was an all-out effort by the dollar beef or terminal-oriented breeders to hijack the word maternal and apply it to their cattle. I believe that 100% as well. If you remember, David, you have a close relationship with your commercial guys, and I know I have a great relationship with mine, and they were starting to really catch on that, man, a lot of these terminal cattle don't seem to be maternal. A lot of these terminal... It was a buzzword in the commercial industry, and it was becoming critical mass, I think, and we needed to find a way to label those cattle. And you mentioned politicking hard. I politicked hard against it. But let me ask you this. I'm going to throw this one back at you. Have you ever talked to anybody that that politicked for it? <laughs> I have yet to encounter a single soul that will step forward. Neither have I. I haven't met anybody that's in favor of it. Or dollar C. Maybe y'all are just a part of the wrong circle. <laughs> that's likely. That's likely. Very likely, yeah. Listen, nobody was more of a terminal breeder at one time than I was, okay? And what really changed my direction was I was seeing these cows were just falling out. Yeah, I had 1% dollar B cattle running all over the place, <laughs> but they were all gone by the time they were three or four years of age. And I said, I've got to change this. This is not sustainable for me. And more importantly, I'm not going to keep my bull customers who all demand 
you know, they want these cows that they had 30 and 40 years ago that were, were low input, uh, problem-free cows that were highly fertile. And by the way, so when I found that out, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the direction I want to go. And, and we've been uh, running hard down that path since. So dollar maternal, let's peel back the cover and look at this. So it's comprised of nine different EPDs or traits. So more than a third of the uh, 24 EPDs and traits that we currently have go into this calculation, which gives us dollar maternal. And I want to walk through these traits. Bear with me. We're going to start with milk. Milk. I, I visited on that earlier. That is the uh, That has the lowest heritability of all traits that we look at, at 12%. I don't care uh, uh, which PhD you talk to, 12% is considered lowly heritable. Next up is uh, Joe's favorite, heifer pregnancy. By the way, that is second lowest in heritability of all the traits at 15%. And before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about heifer pregnancy. It is what I would classify as a threshold trait. The data that's submitted, and by the way, there's not an overwhelming amount of data going in on heifer pregnancy to American Angus. But that data, when it's submitted, it only looks for those that check open. It doesn't matter if you have a 30-day breeding season or a six-month breeding season. It's only interested in those that come in open. Well, and frankly, does it really matter how bred you are? <laughs> I mean, like, really? It does in my Yes world. or no? <laughs> you're bred or you're not. And, and you're bred early in the season or you're not. But I think that a lot of people... You talk about dollar maternal and being able to skew these indexes, which I'm sure we'll get to later on. But a lot of the big time outliers on dollar maternal are freaks for heifer pregnancy EPD. Well, does that mean that that freak you can then take if she's a 23.6 or 25? I don't even know what the highest is anymore. I I keep I quit keeping track of the highest animals because they always end up gravitating back to average anyways over time. So then is that a, that's saying that that heifer has value because you could take one that has negative heifer pregnancy and make something that's usable? I mean, what are we advocating here? I think that that's a problem. <laughs> no, no I, don't, I don't think that's the intention of it. But my real point that I want to drill home to everyone listening is it does not matter if that female bred first service, second service, third service, fourth service. It does not matter into the calculation for heifer pregnancy. All it's looking is who was open at the end of the season, whether your season was 30 days or six months. How do we get the difference between how do the numbers differentiate it? If, if I've got 90% breed back, all of the ones that are bred should be a 25 and all the ones that aren't should be a zero. <laughs> well, I like the way you think there. I, I don't know how they uh, uh, really split that out. And, and while we're on heifer pregnancy, I want to share this with you. And, and I'm, I'm not going to mention names here, but uh, if you start surveying herds around the country that are extremely high for heifer pregnancy, they're basically outliers. Their whole herd is full of outliers. I have discovered <laughs> that a lot of those operations don't submit breeding records. I mean, it is, it is based solely on genomics. And, and I'm going to tell you what, I have a real problem with that. So genomics that, I mean, based on what I see, you know, just for comparison's sake, 9.3 million birth records in our database, 126,000 heifer pregnancy records. And, and why are there not heifer pregnancy records, David? Probably because most breeders are just going to sell the ones that are open anyways, right? Right, right. And, and, and it is, um, you know, I've been in Maternal Plus for, geez, 
since its inception. And I will tell you, it is very labor-intensive to submit those records. It's not as easy as just send them up, you know, your breeding book. And no, it's not like that at all. But uh, let's move on. Uh, so also in Dollar Maternal, uh, we've got Calving Ease Direct, which is the third lowest uh, heritability at 19%. Uh, calving ease maternal, which is the fourth lowest. <laughs> I see where you're going. <laughs> at, at 20%. Uh, now, we start moving into these traits that are a little more uh, heritable. Uh, we have claw, hoof claw, and hoof angle. Now, they're tied for uh, fifth lowest heritability of the 24 traits at 25%. But what really differentiates those two, that's strictly a subjective measure. And then we, of course, have weaning weight, mature weight. Mature weight is actually fairly high heritability. It is high heritability at 35%. But we have the least amount of data for that trait. Is docility in there? Or are you waiting to get there? No, no. Docility is, and it is the, uh, the highest heritability of those nine traits at 44%. But again, a very subjective trait. Yeah, that's a trait that some people would advocate at range cabin. They say, we don't want these super docile cattle because they go leave their calf after the feed trap. Absolutely. Or they don't grab their calf and go to the next field. And so, so keep going because I think I know where you're going with this and I got a wrap for you. Well, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm far from done on dollar maternal, but uh, so basically, as you can see, dollar maternal is made up mostly of lowly heritable traits and it's made up of some subjective traits and traits with a lot of variability to them. So it allows for cattle that might have one serious flaw, they can still excel for this index. And see, I would argue that if an animal misses one of these traits, well, then that completely negates her maternal doability. If if a cow if a cow's not bred, or if she doesn't have she's not bred as a heifer, yeah, then she's yeah. not maternal. You bet, you bet. And that goes for sires too. Now, I, I did a little digging here. I mean, it's just a, a real simple search that I did. There are five proven, and if you could see me, I'm I'm using the quote signs. Five proven sires. Recording a dollar maternal over 100. Let's dig in. Only one of those five, only one of five has more than one daughter with progeny mature weight data submitted. I think I figured it out. I figured out where they went wrong. They put the dollar okay. sign in front of the M, and, and that's where we <laughs> should have all known it was a sham. <laughs> of the five, there are two sires that have two or less progeny contributing heifer pregnancy data. Okay, so, so where did they get where they're at? Genomics. Only one of the five ranks above breed average for all nine of the traits that I mentioned. And he is only showing two daughters in production. And I'm going to pull out another bull here. This is a bull that uh, uh, many of us that are like-minded, we've used this bull. And that's Logo. Logo is the number one dollar maternal sire. And coincidentally, he's the number one heifer pregnancy sire as well. However, when you analyze how he got there, this is a bull that has no maternal weight data. His sire has none. His dam has none. His maternal grandsire and maternal granddam have no maternal weight data. So that throws into question to me how we can even have an index dollar maternal. And that's the most heritable trait, correct, of the nine? Mature weight. Yes, it is. Yes. 
Well, and I could get into mature weight too. I mean, there's so many questions about that one. If we want to talk about the flaws that really frustrate me, because I think that the current move, if you look at what dollar maternal, what they want to say, they, whoever the they's are, is this is an example of where you can extend out growth as far as you want. And as long as you keep mature weight in check, you'll be okay. And under the basic premise, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I'm into breeding unicorns too, but we know that these unicorns don't reproduce each other. And we do know that most of them end up gravitating back towards the average. And what I found with mature weight, I don't know how it all works with data submission and stuff. And I've dug around and I can't find a good answer. I do know that a lot of breeders only turn in data on their sec- on their first calf heifers. Some, maybe their second calvers, damn sure not everybody on their cows. And... Uh, I think a lot of those cattle with extended growth patterns come in looking really hard. Maybe they're weighing 900 pounds, weaning a 700 pound calf and data never comes out again to show that that ended up being a 1900 pound cow that had an extended growth pattern into her sixth year. Um, so it's frustrating because we see a lot of commercial guys come to us and they say, we want to buy these low mature weight deals. And, and sometimes the earlier maturing cattle who reach their peak weight sooner, obviously, are the ones that get hammered on mature weight, at least on the EPD context. Absolutely. Well, guys, that we've kind of beat this horse to death, but uh, I want to go around and uh, hear from everyone here about what advice would you give young or new breeders uh, that are starting out and they're trying to find their way and they're distracted by a lot of noise. Uh, the noise are cell catalogs. The noise are uh, four-color glossy ads in the Angus Journal these high fly and sell results where they're averaging 35,000, it's pretty easy to get confused and, and uh, even easier to go down the wrong path. Corbin? Yeah, I was going to offer to go first because I'm sure Joe will have something a lot more profound to say than I do. But, but the thing that I want everyone to take into consideration is I want you to listen to this podcast. I want you to listen to Joe and David, and I want you to know that you have an ally on your side. And it may not be Joe or David. It definitely shouldn't be me. But you have that person at your disposal. So call your peers, gather information that way. Don't just go looking through an AI catalog and say, hey, this one's got all these top 10% EPDs. You know, you have to use your brain a little bit and, and just use those resources that are available to you instead of taking the easy way out and, and just stay away from wearing your Crocs in the basement. So Corbin, should they, uh, I don't know, should they go on Facebook to one of these cattle discussion sites. <laughs> yeah, everybody everybody should just say, hey, what are y'all's thoughts on these bulls? <laughs> <laughs> and just reply to my polls. That's what you really should do is just reply to my polls. But does everyone remember Genetics 101 where they draw on the board? I remember because out here we have Pacific Gas and Electric. Pacific Gas and Electric. They write P equals G plus E. Phenotype equals genetic material plus environmental influences. And the goal in the advent of EPDs and genomics has always been to figure out how we can tease environment out. Let's take the environment out so that we can have an accurate comparison of cattle across environments and figure out what their true genetic merit is. On its face, I love that discussion and it makes complete cerebral sense. But when you really dive into the practicality of it, I wonder if some of the Achilles heel of the EPD system is pulling environment completely out. And when I say that is, we, we've created cattle that already have maximized growth within their environment. There's other traits we should get a handle on. And I think that it becomes very difficult to stay convicted when you're starting out and you got to pay bills and you have to enter your bull in a consignment sale because you don't know how else and you want to differentiate your product. 
But I would really, really encourage you to go the route of finding a successful breeder who's gone on it for a long time in your region, consult with them the type of cattle they have, then go look for yourself. Is this something I want my herd to look like in the next 15, 20 years? Is this the kind of product I want to present myself with? And then figure out how they use EPDs. David and I brought up a bull and I'll I'll name him because he's old and proven, SAV Prosperity. What first drew me to Prosperity? Prosperity I was drawn to because I saw 1,200 head of Prosperities at one ranch visit. A guy that uses 1,000 units of semen for two years in a row on a bull before he moves on to another. And they were peas in a pod, cookie cutter, outstanding feet, outstanding phenotype. And do the cattle have flaws? Sure. Guess what? They all do. But when you studied his data set for the amount of observations he had for a multi, multi array of traits throughout the whole population, he was an outlier in my mind. He was an outlier in consistency. He was an outlier in maternal value. And he was an outlier in terms of his carcass composition. And I said, he's proven enough to take a flyer on him. I saw him used in an operation similarly ran to ours and was successful. I know the program he came from, his dam came from, his maternal grandsire on down the line in different genetics that have worked. And thank God I found some people that I can trust who've cut through the BS and just said, you know what, this ain't working. If you want to chase the EPD rabbit down the trail, go ahead. But I'll tell you one thing right now, there'll always be a new number one and their ones will always end up gravitating towards the average. And so if you want to get on that train early, go ahead, but it's an expensive one to run. And, and I don't know, you know, I want to know what good we do to the commercial industry by just continuing to increase EPDs. We need to increase the accuracy and reliability of them, and we need to increase the confidence in them, and we need to increase the value in which they're used by producers across the spectrum of the Angus business. And so if you're listening to this and you're young, I say yes slash no. Do we use EPDs? Yes slash no. The first test is always, is this animal of a phenotype and maternal lineage that'll work in our operation? Second is, is it an EPD package that kind of makes sense? And we define in our operation what makes sense. And three, is that an animal that will add value to my, to my customers? And that's where the rub maybe is, is it's knowing your customers, it's knowing your endpoint, and it's knowing what they need to end up being profitable in the end. Well said, Joe. And uh, I, I'm just going to, I agree 100% with uh, everything you just said, but I just want to tease this fact out again. And, and this has uh, really led me to, breeding cattle that I'm, I'm much more content with. I have utilized EPDs as a secondary selection tool, but I only use them after I'm comfortable that the uh, parents that I'm looking at excel for the fundamentals and they do it at a uh, uh, repeatable fashion. They're predictable, consistent, and they excel at uh, the intangibles that uh, quite simply we don't have an EPD or an index for. So in closing, I'm, I'm certainly not anti-EPD. But I would, I would urge each of you to uh, think about what direction you want your program to go, what best will get you there. And as Joe mentioned, seek out someone locally that's successful, uh, that you trust, and that operates in a similar environment to you, and gain as much knowledge as you can there. And if you can't, call David or I, too. Call David and I, give us a phone call. We'll put you in touch with a breeder somewhere that uh, we've had relationships with the past that that would pass that litmus test for you as well. You bet. So Corbin, with that, how can people reach out to us? And 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 we're always looking for uh, ideas for the show, topics to cover, people to talk to. Corbin, how do they find us? Well, first of all, some of you might notice that we left out a 
what's going to be end up being a really popular segment, keeping it real with Corbin. We left it out this week. Um, so the main reason for leaving that out is because it's up to you. You guys are going to have to hit us up. You're going to have to hit us up on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, you can call us. You can text us. We want to hear from you. Like us on Facebook, Angus Underground. It's also the same on Instagram. Basically, we were, we're reliant on you guys. So if you like what you hear, just hit us up. Indeed. And this is a show all about Angus for people who breed Angus. This is your show. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you back in two weeks. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Rack, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.